Good morning, Beacon Church. All right. So, so good to see you again. I mean, this has been an incredible morning already. I was just overwhelmed during worship earlier. And then these kids, it's, I mean, it's just, it's too much. I mean, let's give them another round of applause, please. I mean, what, what a blessing. Um, yeah, so it's good to be together. You know, I wanted to tell you that a couple of years ago, uh, almost to the, to the, actually, to the year, two years ago in August, so now I guess it's September already, my family and I, we took a trip to Disney World. And, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time planning this trip. For whatever reason, we felt like the best time to go would be, like, in the hottest month, in the most crowded possible time. So we decided first week of August, off to Disney World, okay? Um, you know how it goes if you've been. Uh, long lines everywhere you go. There's, like, the, the rack of lines, and then you think you're at the front, and then you turn the corner, and what do you see? A whole second room of, like, more of those things, right? So, you know, 180-minute wait, it says, at the beginning of the ride. And they're just trying to not remind you that's three hours for, like, a 90-second ride. But we saw this one ride that had only a 90-minute wait. How short, right? We're like, you know what? Let's get on this ride. It was called Mission Space. And we get on this line, and I'm feeling good, I'm feeling confident, I'm feeling, you know, excited. I love roller coasters, and like I'm a thrill seeker when it comes to amusement parks and all that stuff, so I'm loving it. So we get to the beginning of Mission Space, and we walk up to it, and it's, it's this thing that we need to get in. Five of us need to get in here, and I'm like, hey, no problem, let's do it. So I hop on in, and I sit down, and, uh, you know, four other people sit next to me, we're kind of in this little pod and like you, there's no leg room and you lean forward it's like this virtual reality experience and uh, I get in there and, and I don't know something happens like my heart starts beating a little faster I'm like what's happening and then they close the door and I'm like I'm starting to breathe a little heavy and I'm like what's happening right now and then I hear the door lock and then I'm like okay now and I'm trying to like be cool my kids are next to me never experienced anything like this before and I started to feel this sense of fear and anxiety. And it turns out, I guess, like, which is a problem I never had before, I turned 40, and I think I got, like, a touch of claustrophobia all of a sudden. And then after that, I was, like, kind of traumatized. Like, an elevator door would close, and I'd be like, it's okay. I'm going to get to the floor that I'm trying to get to. I'm working through it. It seems to be getting better. But all of a sudden, I was, like, highly aware of this fear that I was facing. And, you know, statistically... Many, many people in this room have some type of phobia. The most common type of phobia that we have is a phobia against this guy, arachnophobia. So I didn't want to trigger your arachnophobia, so I didn't put up like the scariest, ugliest spider. I put up the cutest, most friendly spider I could find on the internet. But this is an incredibly common fear that we have. Uh, another common fear is acrophobia, fear of heights. Now that kid obviously does not have acrophobia. But um, statistically, many people in this room do. You know what the third most common phobia is, the thing that most people are afraid of? It's called cynophobia. It's a fear of dogs. That is our dog, Bailey Boy. And listen, as I get to know you guys better, we would love to just like have you over to our house, especially if you have a fear of dogs, because I believe he will just like cute the, dog, the, the fear right out of you. Because Bailey Boy is just... the in our opinion, the greatest dog that ever lived. So 
Uh, and then there's some like weird, there's some weird ones out there as well. Like, uh, and I think I have one of these. It was, it's called trypophobia, which is like, have you ever heard of this? It's like a fear of like little holes or little dots. I, I, I even put up a picture because it would just skeeve me out, and I got to make the PowerPoint. So uh, it's like if you cut a pomegranate open, what you see there, you're just like, I don't know, maybe I'm weird. Okay, I see a couple of you nodding though, so you know what I'm talking about. So let me, get, let me get Bailey off the screen there because, yeah, no one's going to listen to me. I'm just going to look at Bailey boy because he's so cute. All right, so listen, we all have these fears, whether it's spiders or heights or the circumstances in our lives, whether it's, it's how we're going to pay our bills, whether that health crisis in your life or in the life of a family member is going to resolve. And we all find ourselves in these situations where our heart starts racing just a little bit. We start breathing just a little bit heavier, and we feel that little lump in our throats when that fear and that worry and that anxiety starts to set in. And when we feel that fear, and when we feel, you know, the close cousins of fear, worry, and anxiety, we have community. Community does what community should do. We have that well-intentioned friend who comes and puts their arm around you and says, I'm so sorry you're going through this, and it's going to be okay, and you just need to have faith. And I'm thankful for that friend, and I'm thankful for that sentiment, and I'm so thankful for that encouragement. But if you're anything like me, when you're laying in your bed at night, and it's just you and your thoughts, this idea of having faith becomes something that's hard to grab hold of sometimes, isn't it? For me, sometimes it feels like, you ever, you ever see like a, a piece of ice that's melting and you try to like pick it up off the floor and the harder you grab it, where does it go? It, it goes farther away, right? And, and it feels like trying to wrap our head and wrap our arms around what it means to have faith sometimes feels like that. So what is this faith that we're trying to grasp onto that sometimes seems so elusive. The writer of Hebrews said that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now that is a profound definition of faith. And we could unpack that in a whole other series, and maybe we will someday. But it's a beautiful definition. Um, the author of the song that we just sang, Helen uh, Lo, uh, how, how do you pronounce her name? Helen, Le Helen Lemel, uh, this woman was an incredible woman. She lived for almost 100 years, as you can see. When she was born, the Emancipation Proclamation was being signed. She was alive during the Civil War and lived through two world wars, all the way through into like the heat of the Civil Rights Movement before she passed. In the last 10 years of her life, she went blind, and she would frequently be seen sitting at a piano singing these words in her blindness. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So yes, writer of Hebrews, yes, faith has something to do with that beautiful definition. Helen Limmel, yes, faith has something to do with turning your eyes upon Jesus. And yet, it still feels like this amorphous thing where if you're like me it's like faith comes and goes like sometimes you feel like you're full of faith and the wind is at your back and you feel like you can do anything like God is with me yes I feel good and then there are other times where we feel just a, a place of of despair and we feel alone and we feel like if God is here where is he I don't feel his presence 
And that fear is, exact, is accentuated and it, and it grows into worry and it grows into anxiety that takes over our, our minds and our spirits and our body, all of those things being connected, by the way. So how do we follow our friend's advice and just have faith? Well, the scriptures say things like, we live by faith, not by sight, right? So, so what does that mean? Well, certainly Paul in 2 Corinthians is talking partly about how we believe things that we don't see yet. But does a statement and a sentiment like that mean that our faith is completely blind? That we are to close our eyes, close our ears, and just jump? And is it that? Or perhaps... Is it something else? And today we are going to look at um, a, a very well-known passage from the scriptures, one that uh, is preached about all the time where Jesus walks on water. And you maybe have heard this story or even heard a sermon about this before. But my hope this morning is that we will lean in in, in, in a new way because I believe that Matthew, one of Jesus' biographers who wrote this, I, I believe that he is a brilliant, brilliant writer. And I believe that he is inviting us as he tells this story to lean in in a new way and to see ourselves in this story. To be willing to confront what is the source of our worry and our anxiety. as How it is that we attempt to manage that fear and that anxiety and that worry in light of this invitation for us in the words of Jesus to come. And I believe that as we do that, we will see more clearly that Jesus invites us and empowers us to experience faith that is personal, faith that is informed, maybe not blind, and faith that is secure. And when we do that, friends, it will reorient the way we see everything if we would be willing to lean into this. It will diminish our fear and worry and anxiety in the light of of his glory and grace. So shall we dive in together? Yes? Okay, let's do it. All right, so this passage starts like this in Matthew chapter 14. If you have a device or something and you want to turn to it, that would be great. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Uh, let's set the scene a little bit here, okay? It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. And while he dismissed the crowd, so after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. So immediately, immediately after what? Okay, well, Jesus and his disciples have had an incredibly long day here. If you're scrolling or you have a Bible or something and you look up at the beginning of chapter 14, a lot has happened. This day started with Jesus and his disciples finding out that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptizer, and a dear friend of all of the disciples had just been executed. And they are filled with grief and sorrow. And Jesus and his disciples decide to go off to this mountainside to process that grief and, and, to, and, and to work through that together. But all of a sudden, thousands of people follow them to this mountainside. And Jesus looks at this group and he has compassion on them. And even in the midst of his own sadness and grief, he has compassion on this group of people that followed him there. And he begins teaching them and healing their sick. Before you know it, hours have gone by. His disciples see that they're hungry. And, and in the blink of an eye, his disciples become like waiters to this group of what was probably like 15,000 people and, and fed them over the course of hours with five, miraculously, with five loaves and two fish. Maybe you're familiar with that story. And this has been an incredibly long day. And after all of that, immediately after all of that, they've had a day. Am I right? After all of that, 
Jesus dismisses the people and he does the thing that he taught us all to do. He goes to a quiet place, a secret place to spend time with his father. And he tells his disciples, why don't you get in the boat, get a head start, and, uh, and I'll catch up with you. And, and that is where we're at. That's where this story picks up. Take a look at what happens next. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So they were in the Sea of Galilee. To this day, the Sea of Galilee is known to have these really obscure weather patterns. It's something about the airflow in the valley. And I don't know, I'm not a meteorologist, but I do know that this is still a thing. Where at the Sea of Galilee, storms seem to just come up out of nowhere. And that's what happens here. You've got the disciples. They're out um, in this sea. It's not, a very, it's not a large sea. And in fact, most people consider the Sea of Galilee a lake. They should have been able to row to the other side in about an hour. And here they are for hours, plural, in the middle of this sea, being buffeted by the waves because this storm just seemed to come out of nowhere. And for us, we look at going into the water like... Like, it's a place where we go for vacation. Maybe if you caught a vacation this summer, you went out to the water somewhere, found yourself on a boat or on a beach because it's soothing and it's relaxing. And that wasn't culturally the situation at the time. Uh, for, the, for the people at that time, the water was considered to be an unpredictable place. It was a place of chaos, a place that easily could bring out terror. The, the, the fact that so many ships had gone down because of these unpredictable storms they also considered that the ghosts of those people who perished in that sea would haunt that sea. So there's a lot of like moving pieces here in a pretty exhausted group going into this. So take a look at what happens next. He says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them and, and he was walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they, they cried out in fear. So again, it's shortly before dawn. Some of your translations, if you have your device open, it says in the fourth watch of the night. Because the night would be divided from this period from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. in three-hour segments, which means we're talking somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. After a long day, these guys are exhausted. Are they their best selves at that moment? They are not, right? And here they go. They, are, um, they see something that... You got, we have to also appreciate, like... Their understanding of what is normal is no different than ours. They see somebody walking on water. Imagine you're out on, you know, off of Jones Beach somewhere and you see somebody walking on water. Are you going to be like, oh yeah, that's probably Jesus? No, right? You're going to freak out. And their sensibilities were no different than ours. So listen, I'm not judging them for thinking that was a ghost, even if it looked like Jesus. Be like, okay, I'm tired, but do you guys see that? Right? And feeling that sense of fear. So they're terrified. They say it's a ghost and they cry out in fear and Jesus responds to them. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. So there it is. There are the words of our well-intentioned friend who puts their arm around us and says, take courage. Says, don't be afraid. But there is more than meets the eye to what it is that Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus is not asking them to have faith in just anything. And he's not asking them to have faith in a positive result that will come about. He is asking them to have faith in him. They're, he's asking them to have faith in a person. To have a personal faith. He sa the way it's translated for us, it says, Jesus says, it is I. Or in some of your looser translations, it says, it's me. But the Greek just translates the words, I am. 
And that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name that God, the covenant God of Israel, used to identify himself. When Moses went to Egypt to liberate the Israelites from slavery, and he said, hey, God, who should I say is sending me? He said, tell them I am is sending you. And this is the Greek translation of that, where Jesus, he, he says, take courage, I am. And what he's telling them, and what his disciples are hearing, is that he's not being, they're not being called out to by just any person. They're being called out by Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel that they were familiar with. The one that they would know to be the Lord, the Lord, the one who's full of compassion and grace. The one who is slow to anger and responds with that slowness to anger. The one that responds with abounding love. The one that responds to them with faithfulness. And faith in a person is very different than putting faith in anything else, isn't it? So we've got this chair over here which I understand uh, was put together by some of our own Beacon folks. I'm very uh, happy to hear that. Looks like a good chair, right? Like, got some solid legs on there. I'm feeling good about this chair. I'm going to put my faith in this chair, and I'm going to sit down. <sighs> All right, that's good. Now, what is more impressive, the fact that I sat down or the fact that this chair is holding, like, the 175 pounds of me? The, the fact that the chair is holding me, right? Like, that's pretty impressive. All right, I hope my medical insurance is, like, paid up. I'm going to give this a shot here. How do you feel about that? I don't feel great, but uh, I got a little acrophobia, I think. But I'm standing on this thing, and it's pretty impressive that this chair is holding all 175 pounds of me, right? All right, I'm going to come back down there. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's an amazing thing to see that this chair has the ability to hold me up. However, this chair has no ability to respond to me, right? So if the chair is over here and I move over here, and I sit down as if this chair is behind me, what's going to happen? You're wondering how committed I am to this illustration, right? <laughs> I'm not that committed, all right? But you can imagine what would happen if I sat down right now. That chair has no ability to respond to me. But when Jesus calls and he says, it is I, he's not just calling us to faith in a positive result. He's not just calling us to faith in some amorphous idea that we're trying to grab onto. He is inviting us to faith in a person, and a person has the ability to respond. A person has ability to meet us with compassion and with grace and with slowness to anger, with abounding love and with faithfulness, and that is exactly what he did for the disciples. Because take a look at what it is that Jesus says in comparison to what it is that his disciples were feeling. It says, they were on the lake, they were terrified, they cried out in fear and what does Jesus do in response he says take courage in response to their terror he says don't be afraid in response to their calling out in fear friends this is amazing news our faith is in a person a person who knows you when you lay in bed at night and it's you and your thoughts. It's not a matter of grabbing for some amorphous idea of faith, but instead accepting the welcome of a person who says to you, come, come to me. I know your terror. I know your fear. I know your sadness. I know your heartache. There's nothing that you have experienced that I haven't also experienced and welcomes us and invites us to come to him. So is it like, okay, well, that's great. Well, just do it. Do we just close our eyes and do we just close our ears and then just start walking? Well, that actually wasn't Peter's experience. Take a look at what happens next. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell, them, uh, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, 
walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Peter's faith here was not blind. It was incredibly informed. Let's think about all of the things that Peter knew, the things that Peter saw and heard. So before Jesus got there, Peter was in the boat, and he knew that his boat was being shuffled back and forth, and this storm came out of nowhere. And what should have been a one-hour trip across this sea is taking a lot longer, and they're not sure they're going to make it at all, because plenty of other boats have gone down in that, in that little sea. So he saw all of that. He saw Jesus walking toward him on the water. A human being walking on water. Yeah, he saw that, even though it was confusing. He heard Jesus identify himself as the trustworthy and powerful Yahweh, the one who is, in fact, good. Peter asks him a question in this verse, and he says, hey, if this is you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus graciously calls him and says, come. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 Peter, no questions. Close your eyes, close your ears, and get in that water. That's not what he says. Jesus, the one who responds, meets him in that place, and he graciously says, yeah, yeah, it's me. Come, you're safe. And then Peter, with all of this information, takes one leg out of that boat and then takes the other, and he's standing on the water, and he starts walking toward Jesus. That is not blind faith. That is faith that was informed by what Peter had just understand, understood to be true. It was faith that grabbed hold of what is true. And faith in Jesus is not blind it is informed by reality. We hear this contrast like I am either a person of faith or I am a person of science. But the reality is we live in a world where E does equal MC squared and also a Jewish rabbi walked on water that day. And we live in a world where 2 plus 2 does equal 4 and also there was a man who died on a cross and on the third day rose again and was alive again. And we live in a world where clearly death and life are not what we think they are. Because on this planet, someone was dead, and then they were alive again, and they make that life available to you and me. That's reality. We live in a world, a reality that was created to be good and whole and, and healthy, and in fact, God, through the gospel and through Jesus Christ, is making that world true and whole and healthy once again. That's reality. We live in a world that God is where God is trustworthy and powerful and abounding in love and faithfulness beyond our imagination. That is real. You know, um, we are invited to claim what is true. Tim Keller once gave me an example that reminded me of this, uh, this dentist appointment that I had and some oral surgery done, uh, like, back here a couple of years ago. So I went to this oral surgeon. He gave me all this information. He was like, listen, I've done this a thousand times before. It's no big deal. I'm going to, like, I don't know, I'm going to saw this and cut that and pull that. And it sounded like a lot, but he sounded really confident. Then I looked up on the wall, and he went to, like, Cornell or something, and he was, like, super experienced. He gave me all the information. I felt great. I was like, let's do it, doc. Let's make the appointment. So I make the appointment, and uh, whatever it is, a week or so later, I'm sitting in that chair getting ready, and uh, all of a sudden, I hear these sounds, like, coming from the next room. I hear the drill. I'm like, oh, boy. I'm pretty sure I heard someone screaming. I don't know. That might have just been in my head. Um, I'm seeing all of these devices. I'm smelling the smells. You know the smell of like the fluoride and like the suction thing and whatever, right? Yeah, I know. And all of a sudden, I'm freaking out. Now, here's, here's a question. 
did anything that the dentist told me, all of the things that the dentist told me that were true, of how he's able to do this, how he's done it many times before, if many others have gone before me successfully, how he's experienced and educated, did any of that change? It did not, right? It actually begs the question, um, what information is actually more reliable? All of that information he gave me at the previous appointment or is more reliable the way that I'm interpreting the sound of that scary drill and the smells and the different senses around me. And we shift back and forth between knowing what is true because it's difficult to accept that we are safe when we feel like something is out of our control. And our faith is informed by what is true. And everything that Peter did there was based on his understanding of what is true. That Jesus is who he says he is. That he is the I am. And that he can trust Jesus' call. He puts his faith in a person. And with that information, he doesn't close his eyes and ears and get into the water. But instead, he walks toward what he knows to be true. And we are invited into the security of that. But you know what? Peter has a, a, a Justin dentist moment coming up next. Let's see what happens. But Peter, when he saw the wind, and he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. So what was it about seeing the wind that may have caused Peter all of a sudden to start freaking out? You ever think about that? I kind of put myself in, in his shoes and was kind of like walking myself through this journey, and it, it actually does make sense. Because everything that Peter had done up until this time, he was still in control of. This has something to do with our control. So he's still in the driver's seat when he looks up at Jesus and he says, hey, if it's you, tell me to come. And Jesus responds and he tells him to come. And, and Peter's still in control when he's the one who decides, okay, I'm in the driver's seat. I'm going to put one leg over the other and over this boat and start walking. He's probably still got his hand on the boat if he's me, right? And he still feels like he's in control. And then he starts taking one step after another away from the boat. And what is it about seeing the waves at that moment that freaks him out? It's got to be the fact that all of a sudden he's realizing that he is no longer in control. And friends, we are all desperate to hold on to control of our lives and our future, aren't we? Our, our fears, our anxieties, our worries are rooted in this lack of control. None of us are afraid of the things that we can control, are we? If you know you can control how something's going to work out, it doesn't, it doesn't cause us any anxiety or fear or worry. But the reality is we are far less in control than we think we are, aren't we? And the faith that we are invited into is informed by something that is true. And that we are secure in the hands of the one who is, in fact, in control. And that's the reason why when Peter walks out there, Jesus didn't say, hey, this water is going to hold you up. Jesus is saying, come to me. I'm the one who's going to hold you up. And I love Peter's, uh, Peter's prayer here, right? Um, take, Peter just cries out. He says, Lord, save me. He's starting, to, he's starting to get it. Imagine all of the, the Hebrew prayers from the Psalms, these prayers of rescue that, that Peter must have had available to him because they memorized the scriptures in that day. They didn't have Bibles all over their homes or, or on their phones, right? 
And yet he just cries out with this simple prayer, Lord, save me. He's starting to get it. That it's not the water or his decision-making skills that can save him, but in fact, it is the one who is control, in control to who, in whom he can put his trust. Take a look at what happens next. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him, and he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus meets him in his doubt, and he reaches out his hand, even in the middle of his doubt, and he pulls him up. Because Jesus will never let us go. He walks with us through this journey of faith. Our faith is not an ice cube that we're grabbing at and it just seems to get farther away. It is in fact faith in a person that is informed and that is secure. And that he will always reach out his hand and he will pull you up out of the water. And that's what he does here. And he says, you know, in our translations, it says, you, little, you of little faith. You know, in the, in the Greek, it's just one word. It's like, you little faith. And most scholars believe that it wasn't an admonishment by Jesus. It was almost like a, like a parental child, like, oh, you little faith. Like, why did you doubt? You were so close. You can put your faith in me. You can trust me. You can trust, not that there's just going to be a positive result. You can put your faith in a person the one who is able to respond to you. Jesus pulls Peter out of his delusion, out of his false reality that the waves would overtake him. And friends, we often live in the delusion that what we see around Jesus is stronger than Jesus himself. We live in the delusion that what we see around Jesus is stronger than Jesus himself. It is not so. When we claim what is true, when we claim what is real, it's that Jesus is in fact, that he loves you with a personal type of love, that we can have faith by claiming those realities, by claiming what is true. And we can know that we are secure and we are safe. So though we feel like we have no control, which in fact we don't, the irony is the things that we think we have control over in our lives, the reality is we have far far less control than we think that we do. And if you follow that road down in any segment of your life, you're going to find that to be true. You know, Jesus told a parable about this very thing. He told a parable about a guy, maybe you're familiar with this, about, about a guy, not like an evil guy, a guy who actually appears to be something of a generous guy who, who stored up for himself all of this grain in these warehouses. And after it's all stored up in there, he sits back and he says, I'm good now. I am set for the future. No matter what comes, I've amassed all of this stuff for myself and I'm, I'm set and I'm good. And the way the parable goes, he loses his life in an instant. And though he tries to control everything, he loses his life. And what Jesus effectively says is that on his tombstone, there's just one word. Anybody know what it is? Fool. And the foolishness wasn't necessarily the fact that he was storing for the future. The foolishness was the delusion that he was in control. When in fact... He, he is invited, just like we are all invited, to put our faith in the one, in the person who in fact is in control. And then come what may, we can know that we're safe. And that's what, Pe that's what Jesus was inviting Peter and his disciples into here. And look at the way this wraps up. And when, when he climbed back into the boat and the wind died that down, then those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. That word truly in the Greek is really just the word truth. So it, it actually maybe more literally would be translated truth. You are the son of God. Do you see what they're doing there? 
They're doing exactly what we're talking about. They saw it. They claimed what was true. Everything else is built around being able to claim what is true. And it led them to worship. Friends, faith is not, faith is not blind. We're invited and we are empowered to lean in to a faith that is personal, faith of a savior who loves you and knows you and responds to you, faith that is informed, that is not blind. It is, in fact, knowing what is true, believing what is true, claiming what is true, and living in what is true. And it is a faith that is secure, a faith of a loving father and his son Jesus who will always reach out his hand to you and pull you out of your delusion where the, the, the smells and the sound of a dental drill become your reality as opposed to the truth of what is true and what is real. And whatever your circumstances this morning, you know, I know some of us are, are in a very difficult place going through uh, tremendous uncertainty in our lives. That could be, you know, whether it's medical crisis or uh, financial crisis or broken relationships in our families. Some of us are going through tremendous hardship right now. But I believe that Jesus is inviting us in this moment to put our faith in him, in a person, and know that that faith is informed and that faith is secure. And maybe you're in a great season of life. And maybe you're just feeling like the wind is, is at your back and you're feeling full of faith and that too is good, but you know that hardship is coming. And the reality is that we are invited into something that is real and that is true and we're invited to claim what is true. Our faith is personal, our faith is informed, and our faith is secure. And that's the reason why we're invited to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. And when we do, the, the delusions, the false reality of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace.